So um, a lot of you may know, uh, because you've heard me preach some and heard me tell stories about it, that my wife, Amy, and I, we are like wannabe homesteaders. And so we have like a, a big garden and I've, I've used that garden for so many metaphors, man. I've just beat that thing until I can get all I can out of it. You know, but we have a big garden, we have chickens and we have fruit trees and all this stuff. And we get as much as we can out of our little half acre plot of land in East Nashville. And, uh, you know, a couple years ago, we decided we didn't have enough going on with four children and a gigantic garden and 14 chickens that we should add beekeeping to the mix. And so... Two years ago, um, we got our first set of bees. We got a bee box and got into it. And I thought, man, I was like, this is going to be so great. I, I was like, beekeeping, you just put a box in your backyard with bees in it and honey comes out. This is going to be awesome. And what I realized once I got into beekeeping, anybody ever tried beekeeping in, in here? Any fellow beekeepers? I got, I got a couple hands, that's all, yeah. Big shocker, big shocker. Not everybody's favorite hobby. You know, once I got into it, I realized this thing's gonna require a little bit more of me than I thought. We started keeping bees, and the first thing I realized was the financial cost was more than I thought it was gonna be. I thought, you know, we paid like $250 for this like starter kit, and I thought that was all I needed. I should have paid attention to the word starter, not finishing kit, you know, so I buy this thing, and you know, it was just the box with the frames. Then I had to buy the bees. Then I had to buy a beekeeping suit, and then there's different tools that come along. I gotta buy this tool, and I need this, and so the financial cost starts going up, and I'm like, well, I'm committed now, so we get the bees back there, and then I started realizing there's a time time cost as well. I literally thought that we'd just be able to put it back there and the bees would do their thing. I mean, isn't that what they do in the wild? But what I started to realize is, no, you have to inspect that beehive like two to four times a month. And when I say inspect it, you know, I've got, I've got four boxes, each of them has 10 frames and I've got to go back there and I've got to examine each and every frame independently and look for, you know, varroa mites and look for small hive beetles and all these weird bugs that I didn't even know existed. And now I've got to make sure they're not invading my beehive. And like, it just takes up time. And every time I've got to start the smoker, I've got to get the suit on, I've got to go out there. And it just started eating up more and more time. And, you know, the first year I kept bees, they all died. We lost every single bee. <laughs> and uh, that was kind of a bummer, you know, I was financially in, but I was like, well, man, got to try it again. So the second year we get more bees, another cost. And, you know, the second year I, I got a bee mentor. I didn't even know that you could get a bee mentor, but you can get a person to mentor you in your beekeeping. So this guy came along and started helping me. But this past year, he kept telling me, hey, next year, you're going to need to get a second swarm. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, you got to have two swarms if you really want it to be healthy. And again, the cost and the time. I'm like, it already takes me an hour to inspect this dumb thing if I had another swarm. So Friday, I made the tough call. I called my bee mentor and I threw in the towel, man. I said, hey, I've... I've given it two years. It's taken up so much of my time. We haven't gotten any honey. Like two years and $500 later, maybe I'll get one jar of honey. Most expensive jar of honey I've ever had in my life, you know? And so I, I called the guy and I told him I was done. He was very happy. He's gonna come pick up all my bees on Monday. So he's pretty pumped. He got another swarm out of thing, but he's promised me some of the honey out of the hive. So it should be good. But you know, I, it was just one of these moments where I realized I had an idea of this thing I wanted to pursue, but I did not give enough time to consider what it would cost me, the time cost, the financial cost. We've all had these moments when kind of unexpected, unanticipated costs end up derailing something that we wanna pursue. And experience, if you've ever experienced that, experience teaches us that failure to adequately assess demands and costs ends up derailing whatever it is that you're pursuing. 
And Jesus is gonna speak directly into this idea when it comes to following him. You know, we've, we've been tracking the life of the Apostle Peter over the last few weeks, if you've been with us. We've, we've kind of just been examining our journey of faith. We've said collectively, communally, we are on a journey together as we're discerning how God is leading us. Individually, each one of us is on a journey, a spiritual journey with, with Jesus, trying to find out who he is, what he says, what is he calling us to. And we've been looking at the life of the apostle Peter and how his journey mirrors ours. And we started off uh, four weeks ago, we jumped in and we looked in Luke 5 at the calling of Peter, where there was this glorious disruption in his life. And he had to leave behind the career that he had pursuing in order to follow in steps of what Jesus had for him. And then the week after that, Dave got up and he started talking about the uncomfortable nature that comes with faith sometimes. He made that statement. He says, you can be comfortable or you can grow, but you can very seldom do both of those at the same time. And we looked at the story of Peter getting out to walk on water and the discomfort that came as he sought to put total faith in Jesus. And then last week, Dave looked at having clarity in times of confusion. And we saw the apostle Peter for the first time before anybody else, he had the clarity to see Jesus, you are Messiah, you are the son of God. And we looked at all that came out of that. And this week, we're going to immediately, we're going to continue with that same story. We were in Matthew 16 last week. We're going to follow that this bold, immediately following this bold de declaration by Peter of Jesus's identity, Peter's going to come face to face with what it actually means to submit to the identity of Jesus as Savior, Messiah, Son of God. And so we're going to pick up in Matthew chapter 16. We left off last week in verse 20. We're going to pick up right away in verse 21, right where we left off last week. This is the word of the Lord, Matthew 16, 21. From that time on, from what time? From the time that, Jesus that Peter declared that Jesus was Messiah. He says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned and he said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. We're gonna pause right there. We'll continue on here in just a minute, but I wanna pause right there and see what's happening. This is a crazy turn of events. Peter has literally gone from worshiping Jesus, Jesus, your Messiah, Jesus, your son of God, to rebuking Jesus. <laughs> Like, how do you go from worshiping Jesus to immediately rebuking Jesus? What in the world is happening in Peter's heart that he would have this sudden turn, that he would have the audacity to rebuke the very one that he just said was the Messiah? You see, Peter had clarity on, on, on the identity of Jesus as Messiah. But Peter's clarity on Jesus' identity as Messiah and his understanding of Jesus' identity brought with it some specific assumptions about what Jesus would do as Messiah. He had, he had assumptions about what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. Now, first century Jews had a wide variety of beliefs about Messiah. They waited for Messiah. The Hebrew scriptures point over and over again to this idea of the anointed one, the son of God, the son of man, the son of David who would come. And there were all these expectations and unpacking the first century Jewish expectations of their Messiah is another sermon, another teaching for another time. But just the kind of the basics of it are this, is that most first century Jews, they believed that when Messiah came, he would bring about the resurrection of the dead. 
And then when Messiah came after resurrection, there would be the judgment of all nations by the perfect justice of God. They, they believed that when their Messiah came, that there would be the implementation of God's kingdom on earth and that there would be a new heavens and a new earth. It was nothing short of the full glory of God displayed on earth to humanity. This was their hope in Messiah. Now, most of these things should sound pretty familiar to us as followers of Jesus. You see, their hope, what they were waiting for, is very much what we're still waiting for, what we're hoping in, what Jesus promised. But there was something that was off in their assumption about the way that it would go down. It was a robust expectation for Messiah. But see, Peter's confession of Jesus brought all these assumptions in, and then he's going, yes, you're Messiah. Yes, all of this is going to happen. And then suddenly Jesus says, I'm about to be murdered, straight up killed, nailed to a cross. I'm going to die. You can feel the like, like what? And Jesus' heart, like the, the, just the flip, the like, I mean, in Peter's heart, he's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? And so he goes, no, 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 Jesus, I think you misunderstood what the Messiah is. Like, <laughs> I just called you Messiah and you affirmed it. Maybe you missed exactly what you're supposed to do. You can't go around talking about dying like this. He, he rebukes him. You see, Peter, he had an understanding and a clarity around the identity of Jesus as Messiah, but he did not understand the journey or the path that Jesus had to walk as Messiah. He understood the identity of Messiah, but he did not understand the path of the Messiah. He had confusion around what the path to Jesus being the Messiah would look like and feel like. This confusion would haunt Peter for much of the rest of his life and ministry. You know, this day that we're just reading about right here, his confusion led him to rebuke Jesus, which ultimately resulted in Jesus rebuking him. On the night that Jesus was arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and he basically says, hey, Jesus, I'm ready to kill for you, but I'm still not quite ready to die for you. And then later on that same night after Jesus is arrested, when confronted, hey, don't you know Jesus? Peter says, I don't know him. I don't. Three times he denies Jesus and betrays him as a friend. You see, there was confusion in Peter's understanding of the path that Jesus was inviting him to walk along. Now, this is, this is so crucial for any follower of Jesus, Peter included. Because if you don't have clarity on the path it is that Jesus is inviting you to walk, then you cannot follow him. Let me say that again. You cannot follow Jesus if you don't understand the path that he's inviting you to walk upon. And this is so important for us because even in our culture, our culture will also bring some weighty expectations for what it means for Jesus to be son of God, to be Messiah, to be savior, to be spiritual teacher. There's all these assumptions about what it means for Jesus to be teacher. And, you know, I, I see these kind of all over. I see them on social media or I read them online or I'll hear people talk about it. There's kind of this, these, these expectations that, well, if, if Jesus is God and he's happy, then he should want me to be happy. If Jesus is God and Jesus is the God in the flesh, then he should be mostly invested in my happiness. Or I've heard people say it this way. They said, well, Jesus suffered so that I don't have to. Like, because Jesus suffered, I shouldn't have to experience suffering. We're all here, some people talk about Jesus as though he is their like cosmic therapist and the primary purpose of his role in their life is to help me make sense of myself. There's all different understandings and expectations for Jesus to be savior. And some of them even have truth to them. But here's the thing, if we misunderstand 
the path of Jesus, if we misunderstand the path he's inviting us on, we will quickly become disillusioned as we follow him on that path and we start to feel some of the cost. It'll be just like me and beekeeping. It'll be like, wait a minute, Jesus, this is not what I signed up for. Why does this feel so hard right now? Confusion around the path of Jesus often results in being derailed in our pursuit of Jesus when things don't go the way that we want them to. And this is what Peter's feeling here in this moment. Now, here's one of the many things I love about Jesus is that he's a great teacher. He's also a great leader. And so here in this moment, he's looking at Peter, his friend, and he sees this wrestling match in his heart. He sees Peter, you know, as, as Jesus says it, hung up on the concerns of man rather than the concerns of God. And then he looks at his other disciples and he takes advantage of this moment to teach them. And so he continues on. He's not gonna leave them in the dark about what it means to follow him. If you pick up in verse 24, it says this, then Jesus said to his disciples, you can imagine he's looking at Peter, he's seeing the wrestling match. He pulls them all together and he looks at them and he says, listen guys, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their very soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? For the son of man is going to come in his father's glory with his angels and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. I love this moment. Jesus looks at the disciples and he he begins to unpack, he sees the, the, the confusion in them and he wants to clarify for them what this path is gonna look like. Now, the first thing I want you to see is that the last thing that Jesus says to them, he actually, he actually affirms all of the messianic expectations that Peter had. He knows what Peter was expecting. Jesus understood his role as Messiah very well. And so he affirms that the very last thing he says, listen, for sure, the son of man, which was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. He was connecting himself to a prophecy in the book of Daniel. He says, listen, the son of man will come in his father's glory with all of the angels to reward all of those who have been following him. He says, this is true. He affirms the hope that Peter has for glory that will come with the Messiah. And so he doesn't discount Peter's expectations. He says, listen, this is coming. He goes, here's the thing, Peter, you've missed the path of what it looks like for me to get to that glory. The path of Jesus, the way of Jesus as laid out over and over again by Jesus himself is a path of suffering before glory. Suffering before glory. We could spend weeks, we could do a whole sermon series on unpacking that phrase, suffering before glory. It's all over the scriptures. If you want just a glance at an understanding of how Jesus modeled that, just go spend some time this week reading Philippians 2. Read Philippians 2 and you'll, you'll get a great picture of what it meant for Jesus to embrace this path of suffering before glory. But what I want us to see this morning is that if you miss the first part of this path, you will also miss out on the second part. Jesus looks at his disciples, he goes, beloved, You've got to know that if you want to come after me, the path is suffering before glory. And if you don't understand the suffering, you will forfeit the glory because you won't understand what it is that you're walking through. Suffering before glory. And then he says, listen, if you want to follow me, 
If you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself. This is so weighty. Jesus says self-denial is central to the path of Jesus. Now, beloved, we live in a culture where the dominant narrative is the exact opposite of that. The dominant narrative says, listen, no, we, we are supposed to, the most important thing I can do in my life is to find my most authentic self, to find the truest version of me. And once I've found that self or I've created that self for myself, then the most important thing I can do is to give myself fully to that authentic self. You hear how many times I'm saying self here? This is part of our culture's narrative, the, the culture that we swim in, that we, that we live, that we breathe, that we eat, that we, that we see everywhere we look. We are told, hey, the most important thing you can do is find your authentic self and then give yourself fully to being that authentic self. And yet here's Jesus going, no, 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 no. If you wanna follow me, you actually have to deny yourself. This is the path. Denying yourself, not living for yourself. Now, what does it mean to deny yourself? You know, I think a, a simple way of understanding that, and the, and the Bible will talk about this in multiple places, it's, it's where I, I choose to consider the needs of others before my own. I choose to live for the sake of others before I consider myself. I lay down my life for the sake of those around me. But this isn't the entire definition of denying yourself. I think also denying yourself means that when I start planning out my life, when I start thinking about the trajectory of my life, that my, my, my goal as a follower of Jesus is to consider God's will, God's desires before my own. That I surrender my own desires for my life to God, for his desires, for his will for my life. This, is, this produces a lot of internal wrestling. I remember when I was a college student, I had a very clear path I thought marked out for what I wanted to do. Since I was in elementary school, I knew that I wanted to be a doctor. You know, I, I love studying science and, and, and I, I, I love the idea of helping people. And, and probably if I'm honest, I love the fact that every doctor that I knew had a lot of money. <laughs> and so I knew as a kid, I'm like, I want to be a doctor because it felt like it was kind of, yeah, I'm doing a good thing. I'm helping people. But man, I also get to live pretty comfortably. You know, it was this thing. I leveraged all of my education towards when I got into high school. I studied every extra science class that I could. I took college level biology uh, my, my senior year of high school, trying to prep myself. So when I got to college, I went to college as a biology major to study pre-med. And I thought for sure I was going to be a doctor. But freshman chemistry had another thing to say about that and uh, did not agree with me. Joseph, I'm looking at you, chemistry teacher, Lipscomb over here. My <laughs> chemistry destroyed me. I was not ready for it. But here's, here's the thing though. It was not just that I flunked out of chemistry that changed the course of my life. My freshman year of college, I just started feeling something in myself. Like my, my life with God began to change. I began to realize that my claim on my life was not mine to hold on to. And there are mentors and disciplers in my life that started challenging my understanding of what it meant to live fully for God, that I may not get to set the path that I wanna walk on, that if I wanna follow Jesus, he may set the path. And early on my freshman year, I started feeling that maybe the Lord was calling me to go into ministry full-time. And I remember just being like, uh-uh, not gonna do it. Like, I'm not going from being a wealthy doctor to being a broke pastor. Like, I'm not gonna do it. And it took me till my third year of college before the Lord finally got a hold of my heart and I reconciled the fact that he was inviting me into something that I did not want to do. And I had a choice. Would I hold it out to him and deny my claim on my own life 
Or would I hold on to it tightly and go, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I ended up changing my major my junior year of college. It meant another year in undergrad. It meant a whole lot of time trying to figure out, okay, what does this mean? Where am I going? What am I going to do? And it took the Lord had to redefine my understanding of success, of contentment, of happiness, because no longer could I build myself an image of my life where my contentment and my satisfaction comes from having material wealth. It was stripped away from me. And the Lord began to give me a bigger picture of what contentment looks like in this age and in this life. And for some of you, there are things that you're holding on to that you're going, this is what I'm, I want to build my life around. And the Lord is going, that's not what I have for you. And the path he's inviting you into is one of self-denial, of allowing him to have access. And for some of you, maybe money is not the big deal. You don't care whether or not you're wealthy or, or make a lot of money or comfortable. You can be happy without it. But all of us have some sense. There's something in our life that we think if we could get that, then we would finally find contentment. It might be a relationship. It might be that job accomplishment, that career. It may be notoriety. It may be being well-known by others or having people think highly of us. It may be status. I don't know what it is, but all of us have that thing that we go, if I just had that, I'd be content. And Jesus is going, no, the path I have you going on is one of self-denial. Are you willing to hold that thing out to me and let me have access to it? Because I may have something different for you. Jesus says, unless you're willing to let go of everything, you cannot follow him. But then he keeps going. He doesn't just say, deny yourself. He says, take up your cross, which is an emblem of death. This further picture of denying yourself, dying to yourself. And then he, and then he makes this crazy claim. He says, listen, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. This is a heavy thing for Jesus to say. And if we want to understand the nature of what he's saying, we've got to to take a deeper look into the word choice that he uses. And so Jesus is going to use this word life several times. You know, in Greek, there were three different words for life. English, we have one because English is just kind of boring. But, you know, Greek, there are three different ways that you could express life. And here in this context, Jesus uses the Greek word suke. It's where we get the word psyche or psychology. And he uses it multiple times here, but it's translated different ways. So when he talks about losing your life, he uses the Greek word suke. And later when he gets down, he starts talking about your soul, losing your soul. It's the same Greek word suke. You see this word psyche, what it described was kind of the the place of affection or will for a person, a a person's distinct identity. Our, Our understanding of what it means to be me, what it means to be human. I want you to catch what Jesus is saying here. He's basically looking at his disciples. He says, my brothers, he says, unless you allow me to crucify your psychology of self, your very understanding of what it means to be human, unless you're willing to allow me to crucify your worldview of what it means to be a human, you cannot follow me. Now, this is, again, a weighty thing for Jesus to say and flies in the face of the dominant narrative of the culture that we're in right now. Several weeks ago, I was on a retreat with some of the leaders of our church and we stayed at an Airbnb and 
There was this kind of uh, hanging on the wall like decoration. It was one of those kind of artistic phrases, you know, that are written in neat handwriting with a black background that you could, you could buy like at an art store or something or Hobby Lobby or Target or whatever, you know. It's like this black canvas with white letters. And, and the phrase that it said on there was, life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't know, what is, sounds cool, seems like something I'd see on social media, but it, it like, caught my attention because it just, it seemed intriguing, it seemed alluring, it sounded really good, but something felt off. And so I ended up, it kind of stuck with me. I ended up later getting online and kind of searching like, who said that? What is that? Turns out it's attributed to a lot of different people um, and, and nobody really knows who said it, but the earliest that it kind of popped up in writing was in the late 60s, right in the middle of kind of the hippie revolution. You know, this idea that radical individualism and radical freedom is at the forefront of what it means to be a person. And this idea that, hey, you don't just find yourself, you get to create yourself. And when I started looking online to learn more about this phrase, I started seeing it everywhere. I saw that people were blogging about it. People were posting it on their social media feed. People were saying different things and it was like, oh, this is so beautiful. I don't get to find myself. I get to create myself. This is like the ethos. It is in the air that we breathe right now. This idea that your identity is totally up to you, that you get to create who you are, what your identity looks like and who you wanna be. You have the total autonomy to be whatever kind of person you choose to be. You know, there's all kinds of research into the, the rising generations, millennials and Gen Z and all this. There's a guy named David Kinnaman. He's a Christian researcher, statistician. He's a kind of cultural analyst and, uh, analyst. And he, he kind of developed this phrase when he started looking at what he's seeing happening in the rising generation. He said, there's this phenomenon going on. He said, I call it elective identity. Elective identity. Elective identity is the idea that, that a person, that people can and should define their own identity. That the individual is the ultimate authority about what is true about himself or herself. Like the individual is the source of that. And that we have access to so many different platforms to put that identity out there so that the world sees us the way that we want them to see us. We are constantly changing, shifting, creating our identity and putting that face out for the whole world to see it. We are in the business of branding ourselves so that other people will think about us, what we want them to think about us. But what we don't know is that in the middle of that, we're being shaped by a culture that is constantly trying to tell you who you should be, what you should think, how you should feel, what you should value. And none of us are shaping ourselves. We're being the product of this culture that is just all around us. And Jesus says, Jesus says, listen, I, I know all of that. Like the world's going to tell you who you are, how you should shape yourself. He says, but listen, I, I've got something different. There's a different worldview for you to operate off of. See what Jesus is talking about here when he says, losing your life. He's talking about losing our understanding of what it means to be human and letting him define it. There's a, there's a worldview difference between us and what we read in these pages. I don't know if you ever thought about that, but the reality is, you know, the apostle Peter, all of his friends, Jesus, they did not have the same worldview that we do. Fundamentally different. And the question we have to ask when we come to the scriptures, when we come to Jesus, 
is we have to ask, hey, am I going to bring my worldview and go, Jesus, I'm gonna take this piece of what you said because it fits here. I'll take this piece because it fits here. And I like that because it lines up with my worldview, but everything else, eh. Or are we going to come to scriptures and go, Jesus, I want my worldview to be yours. I need you to take my understanding of life, of meaning, of humanity, of history, of future. I need you to take it all and remold it so that I think the way that you think. Jesus says, will you come to me? Will you let me reshape your very understanding of what it means for you to be you? This is a radical cost. It is a radical laying down of our lives. Jesus says, following me means denying yourself, allowing me to be the one to inform you about the truth about everything. It's saying, Jesus, you get to define me. Now, this is really, this may sound threatening to some of us, but the truth is the scriptures are full of beauty about who we are. From the very, very beginning, the scriptures would hold out that you and I, we are, we are created in the image of God Almighty. You have inherent worth and beauty and purpose because you were created in the image of the divine God, the divine creator, God Almighty. This is what the scriptures will say. And they'll say, and because I'm your creator, because I created you in my image, because you're in my family, I actually know what is very best for you. And this is why I invite you to lay down your life so that you can find it when I hold it out for you. Now, some of us may be going, okay, path, suffering before glory. Aaron, you're doing a lot of like philosophy stuff up here. What are you talking about? Why does this matter? Let's just, rubber meets the road. What does it mean? You know, the reality is I've sat down with Christians from around the world and they experience this. They understand suffering before glory because it's the path they've had to walk. You know, when, I, when I've been to India and I sat down with our brothers and sisters in India who grew up with a Hindu worldview and their entire family had a Hindu worldview and then they met Jesus and this person gives their life and they say, Jesus, you can shape my worldview no longer while I let the Hindu worldview shape me. I want you to and they experience immense suffering. Their families kick them out. I met a woman who was stabbed by her husband. Their power gets cut off by the government. They experience suffering before glory because they no longer let the dominant worldview of their culture shape them, but instead they let Jesus's truths shape them and they suffer for it. I see this, this is true in Muslim majority nations. You know, I've sat down and I've talked with Muslim background believers in Jesus who grew up Muslim and when they gave their life to Jesus, I mean, I sat with one brother and sister and his whole family just came against them when they gave their life to Jesus. His own cousin and brother were making life threats on them because they chose to let the worldview of Jesus shape their understanding of life more than the worldview of Allah and Islam in the Quran. You see, they understand the cost, but here's what's hard for us as followers of Jesus in America is that for decades... For decades, we have had the luxury of having the culture around us aligned for the most part with our values and our ethics. And for decades in America, you've gotten a pat on the back if you chose to live the way Jesus called you to, but beloved, this is not the reality anymore. The current is changing in our culture. The current is rapidly changing. And Jesus says, you need to know that if you want to follow me, you've got to count the cost because there will be a cost. There will be hardship. There will be suffering. You, Aaron, what are you talking about? Here's, here's a couple examples. Just this very idea 
that if you wanna follow Jesus, you should deny yourself and let him be Lord of your life. So many people in our culture would hear that and just go, that is oppressive. That's so close-minded, like it's so oppressive. Why would you ever, why would you do that? Be true to you, do your thing. When I think about what our culture is constantly saying about the value of the human life, there's a reason, there is a culture war, there's a tension in our culture about things like abortion and euthanasia. Because if you trust in Jesus to shape your worldview, the value of the human life is paramount. But the culture that's around the radical individualized self says no, each individual self can define that worth for themselves. There's nothing else holy about it. They can choose. And this is why, this is why we have such huge numbers of abortion. Why, I just read about this past week, these new legislation on euthanasia, people being able to end their lives legally. And we go, oh man, that's, that's weighty. I'll give you another example. Beloved, I, we are at a place right now in our culture that if you, I'm just gonna say it, if you, if you ascribe to what the Holy Scriptures teach about sexuality and about gender, and if you stand up and you share that publicly and talk about it openly, you will be labeled as a bigot it's not just that you're closed-minded and old-fashioned anymore. No, you're, you're bigoted. The reality is if you stand on what the word of God says about sexuality and gender and God's divine creation, you, you will be looked at by many in our society. You are on the same level as a racist. I know this is weighty, but, but can we see that Jesus is going, beloved, if you wanna follow me, there's a cost. Many in our church family have felt this cost because they have said, no, no, I, I wanna follow Jesus. I wanna follow Jesus' way. Their families have come against them. Their friends have come against them. Increasingly, we are going to be swimming against the current of our culture as followers of Jesus. And Jesus, because he's a good leader and he's a good teacher, he says, I want you to understand the cost on this journey that I'm inviting you on. There is glory, there is glory, there is goodness, there is great reward, but you've gotta know that on this path, suffering comes before glory. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is he didn't just say, hey, this is the path, good luck, guys. No, Jesus invited them on the path. He said, follow me because I'm walking <clears throat> this same path. Jesus' culture hated him. He was arrested. He was brutally murdered. He was hung on a cross to die. He was abandoned by all of his friends. He was spit on and beat and ridiculed and mocked. Jesus understood the cost. He understood the path and he walked it willingly because he loves you, because he loves me. And he wants us to free us of the tyranny of deception. He says, this is the path. This is the path. At times it will be challenging. At times it will be stretching. At times it will be painful and at times it will cost you. Jesus says, follow me. Now, some of us, we would go, this, that sounds terrible, Jesus. Like why? What kind of sales pitch is that? Suffering before glory? Like why? But here's the thing. One of the things I've become convinced of is that anytime the cost feels like it's overwhelming to us, it typically means that we've lost perspective on how grand the reward, the glory actually is. 
I think one of the most tragic things that's happened in <clears throat> the Western church is I think we've lost our perspective on the bigness and the beauty and the grandness of the reward that Jesus has for his followers. It is amazing. I mean, just the love of Jesus alone. I'm just, I'm telling you, if you've never like seen, beheld, felt the love of Jesus, it is, it is, worth, it is worth any price, any cost, but it's not just the love that we get from him right now. You know, we, right now we have the fruit of the spirit as followers of Jesus, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, that in the midst of hardship, all of those things are with us. But did you know that the Holy Spirit, all the goodness that comes from the Holy Spirit, that that is just the down payment? <laughs> That's just the deposit. That if you've ever experienced any comfort, any joy, any encouragement from the Holy Spirit, that is just a little piece of what is yet to come. And this morning, you know, as we get ready to, to kind of just end this thing, talking about the cost, I want to make sure we have an understanding of how big and how great the reward of Jesus is for those who love him. And I, I wish I could preach a whole other sermon on that because that, that is, that's, it's amazing. What I want to do is I just want to read to you a portion of scripture. Because we're going to get ready. We're going to take communion here in a few minutes. And you know, when you take communion, you're holding the bread, the cup. It is the body, the blood of Jesus. It is a constant reminder of the path suffering before glory. But I want us to have a glimpse of the glory. So I'm gonna read from Revelation 21. If you want to follow along, you can, but I would encourage you even just to close your eyes and just listen to these words. This is a prophetic word given to the apostle John, painting a picture of the reward that Jesus has promised to bring, the reward that is coming. This is what he says. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. I know I've said this lots of times up here, but this, you know the burning desire of God's heart? The burning desire of God's heart is to dwell with his people, to dwell with you, for you to see him, to know him, to admire the splendor of who he is. But then listen to this. He's not just that he wants to be amongst us. Verse four says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. I don't know what it is that's caused you sadness. It's caused you pain. It's caused you to shed tears, have grief and mourning. I don't know what you've experienced in your life, but you know, this is the reward that at the renewal of all things, new heaven, new earth, that God himself, he will be the one to reach out and he will wipe every single tear from your eyes. He will be the greatest source of comfort. It keeps going. It says, there will be no more death. There will be no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the old order of things has passed away. And he who is seated on the throne he said, I'm making everything new. 
He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and they are true. Beloved, the reward, it's greater than anything you've ever imagined. It's not sitting on a cloud and playing a harp. (laughs) It's more enjoyable than anything you've ever imagined, ever thought of. It's more glorious than anything you could ever dream up on your own. It is the end of everything that causes pain, everything that causes hurt, everything that causes sadness, doing away with that. It is creation restored to its intended beauty. It is life on a new earth with God Almighty, wiping the tear from every eye. It is the tree of life alongside the river whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. It is the end of war. It is the end of strife. It is the end of death. It is the end of murder. It is the end of oppression. It is the end of injustice. It is the end of human trafficking. It is the end of slavery. It is the end of every kind of abuse and every kind of hardship that humanity has had to wrestle with, God is going to end it all. And he's going to bring life and love and joy and comfort complete by his very presence amongst us. This is the goal. This is the reward. And it is worth the cost. It's worth it. So I just want to pray over us. and I'm going to send us to the communion table. And as you take the bread, as you take the cup this morning, I want you to just share with one another where are the places in your life where you're feeling the cost? And maybe there's not a place in your life right now, but I bet you know somebody who does feeling the cost. Pray for them, pray with one another, encourage one another. And as you take the bread, as you take the cup, remember the one who invited you on the path has gone before you. He shed his own blood. He died for you to make the reward your inheritance. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Oh God, oh God, how great is the reward. Lord, I long for it. I long to see you. I long to see your glory. I long to see your face. I long for you to end the the broken, decaying structure of the world as it is and to renew it all. I long to stand side by side with brothers and sisters from every tribe, every language, every nation, worshiping you, encouraging one another. I long for it, Lord. But Lord, we cry out right now because the cost is great. We feel the cost, we feel the path. And I ask as we commune with you over the cup and the bread, Lord Jesus, would you in your grace, would you sustain us, give us strength, fill us up that we may endure the path you've called us to, Lord. Would you come in our midst and would you work amongst us, minister to us now, Lord, as we commune with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.